Welcome to the Ecom Wiz Podcast, a podcast that helps Amazon sellers to dominate the marketplace. And I do mean dominate. Dominate. Each week, we deliver the best interviews with some of the top Amazon influencers in the industry. This is the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for joining the Econ Wiz podcast. My name is Henson from Feedback Quiz, and our guest today is Ken Kubik. And Ken is the VP of Acquisitions at Thrash.io. Uh, Thrash.io is one of the fastest growing companies that acquires Amazon FBA businesses. Um, they're fully funded by many top investors, and they'll pay cash and ensure a 45 day close. Check out their website over at thrash.io. That's T-H-R-A-S.io. Um, thanks for joining us today, Ken. Um, so for all the yep. Amazon FBA business, uh, FBA brand sellers listening today, uh, Ken's going to go over exactly uh, what you should do to get your brand set up for an acquisition. And any of the new sellers uh, who are looking into getting to Amazon, uh, Ken will discuss on how to properly set up your company brand. So thanks, Ken, for joining our podcast. And if you could give us a little bit of a background, you know, what you do before you got yeah. into Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on the, the podcast. Um, and it was great uh, spending some time together at IRC over the past week, uh, getting to know some of the team, including the Wiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Uh, so, yeah, just my background. So I had spent, uh, previous to entering the Amazon, ecosystem. I had spent 13 years as an investment uh, equities analyst and portfolio manager um, investing in small cap technology growth stocks. Um, so worked at some of the largest uh, mutual fund managers, you know, managing you know, a couple hundred millions of dollars across uh, multiple mutual funds. And then I just got kind of burnt out of, you know, the Wall Street grind and um, actually connected with an entrepreneur in Boston that had a few different businesses, one of which was a uh, $15 million a year Amazon business. Um, he had a couple other businesses he was working on and needed somebody to come in and streamline operations and operate the day-to-day -day for his Amazon FBA business. So uh, it was something totally new to me. Um, I love learning about new things. Um, I was always enamored with Amazon as a consumer, so it was a great opportunity to join and learn, uh, look under the hood and see how the, the, the marketplace and ecosystem actually works from the inside. Um, so I did that for about two years, uh, really learned a lot, learned about all the trials and tribulations of being an Amazon seller. Um, and that, that basically put me in a great position to um, run in my, my current position as VP of acquisitions at Thrasio, um, kind of basically marrying my investment background and then also my Amazon operational background. Um, so Thrasio was started, um, first acquisition was done over probably a year ago. We just had our anniversary, I think at the end of May. Um, and then, you know, conceptually the company was conceived, I would say two to three years ago. And it took a while for the owners to, you know, just kind of come together. They, they were both running previous businesses, um, were in the process of starting to exit, et cetera. And, um, so the, then they basically, they were origi originally going to do an e-commerce roll-up. So um, they were going to, you know, financing and SEO are two of the, you know, basically strong attributes of, you know, both owners. Um, so they were going to roll up e-com sites, leverage SEO. And then the more and more they learned about Amazon uh, and the scale of the FBA platform, they thought it was a great idea to just, you know, 
try an acquisition there and see how hard it is to operate, um, you know, an FBA business. Turns out it's not as easy as people think it is <laughs> from the onset, right? You hear these stories of four hour work week and, um, you know, work five hours a week and you can, you know, become a multimillionaire. I think that's true in some cases, but, you know, the real successful businesses we've seen are the, the business owners who actually treat this like a business, not a side hustle. Um, so with that, they decided in an earnest to build out a team and really focus on strong operators with experience that supersede where, where the company was currently at, but um, focused on where it can be over the next few years. Um, so fast forward to today, um, you know, we've acquired close to almost 20, 20 brands. Um, we have a team of almost 50 people. And we're the pace right now. We're you know we're acquiring two to three Amazon FBA brands a month. Wow, that's a really cool story and how you started and you know how great, how fast have you guys grown with the fifty team, fifty person team. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like I guess I guess my first question for you really is um, like as a new seller looking to start on Amazon, um, like what do they need to do to set up their you know, business properly, even, even for the existing sellers, like if they, you know, everyone's goal is to try to get an exit at some point. Right. So yep. what are, what are some tips or what they should need, need to do for you guys to look into and say, Hey, this is a legit company for us to, you know, invest in. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think if you look, we'll, we'll probably talk about this, you know, towards the end in terms of the future of Amazon, but you know, one of the things that we is a requirement is having your brand trademarked. So I think a lot of people that might be an afterthought um, when you get started, right? It's just, Hey, let's just come up with a brand that's not taken in the storefront and, you know, build a product underneath, underneath that moniker. But um, you know, with brand registry 2.0 and what we believe is going to be increased scrutiny uh, on sellers and IP um, we think that's just table stakes. So if you don't have your brand trademarked, I would definitely, you know, do that tomorrow. Um, the next thing is just the, you know, legal structure set up. Um, we've, we've bought businesses that were domiciled in the UK, Philippines, Romania, you know, US. Just make sure you have, you know, a clear ownership structure in place. Um, you know, I would advise you to either, you know, talk to an accountant or um, someone else that has knowledge on, on tax implications on the sale. You know, there's just varying tax, tax codes and uh, pros and cons of uh, where your business is domiciled. So, um, you know, set that up. The other thing that I, you know, as somebody who's upfront talking with sellers, looking at their business, looking at the profit and loss statement, um, having your accounting, uh, basically, you know, at least have a, a monthly P and L that you're keeping track of. Um, you know, there's two types of accounting cash based and accrual based accounting. Um, most sellers, you know, will have cash based, which is basically just money in money out. Um, you know, so if you buy your inventory in June and then you sell it through in the subsequent, uh, you know, six months, you're, you're going to lose a lot of money in June, but you're going to make a lot of money in the subsequent six months. Uh, what buyers like to see is what's called accrual based is, and that's your, where you matching cost for each revenue dollar uh, associated with that. So, you know, if you, you basically put the inventory on your balance sheet and then it goes through your P and L for every unit you sell, you kind of, you have a true it flows through on the cost of goods sold and you actually have a true uh, profit loss statement. We can see the, yeah, the underlying true economics of the business. Um, so th I think those are like the three, I would say table stakes. And then, 
you know, what we look for is we look for leaders in their markets. Um, so, you know, we don't want to be, uh, you know, buying products that are just me too, that, you know, maybe are on page two, page three, kind of lost in the Amazon endless aisle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I would recommend that people really focus on, um, their hero skew to start. So all your marketing, all your, you know, if you only have what, if, you know, money to shoot a video for one product or, you know, optimize or design, et cetera. I would, I would really focus on one product, nail that product down, um, you know, do really well, beat out your competitors across, you know, the visual representation of that product on Amazon. And then I would start, once you get that going, I would start to then diversify. But until you really nail that, that hero product, I, I wouldn't, you know, diversify too far away from, you know, I wouldn't go from one product to 10 products um, just because you think that's what, you know, a potential buyer would like that diversification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oftentimes we call it diversification. Um, you're, you only have so much capital to allocate as an entrepreneur. And, you know, if you're earning a lower and lower return with each incremental uh, dollar capital that you're investing in your business, that's just not a good business. I see. So basically your advice is, you know, have one, you guys are looking for like a brand with at least one solid product and not so much like a whole bunch of products that are like mediocre and like page two or three, because it's not that attractive. Right. So, right. Yeah. And it could, you know, it could easily fall away or, you know, become less and less competitive over time. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you know, we think that, that we look for products that are in, you know, everyday demand products that have ever, evergreen opportunities. So, Think, think of hard goods, think of, you know, umbrellas and just, you know, our ideal company is the number one selling spatula on Amazon, right? Yeah, yeah. No one's really going to innovate uh, the, the spatula. You, the buyer psychology is based on social proof for that category, you know, which is effectively price, review, quantity, and review score. And then, you know, if all those things are somewhat equal, the next, you know, is going to be the eye test in terms of content and, what the listing looks like, et cetera. So we're basically trying to buy that uh, leadership um, in, in social proof. Um, and we think over time that has, that will have, you know, a defensibility of um, the, the revenue and cash flows for that business. Gotcha. So um, I guess another question is you guys are more focused on Amazon uh, businesses, but let's say I had a business that sells on Amazon. I have my own website you know, might have a Shopify store. Um, do you guys buy the entire brand or is it just the Amazon part of the business? Like how do you guys? Yeah. Yep. So most of our, most of our purchases, unless you're domiciled in the UK, um, are structured as asset purchases. So we buy everything associated with that asset. So it'd be the trademark, it'd be the, you know, the Amazon or the seller central account, um, all your websites, your Shopify websites, et cetera. Um, you know, most most of the most of the businesses we do buy have their own um, D 2 C presence, um, mostly on you know Shopify or WooCommerce platforms, and you know we think it's a, we think it's a great asset um, in terms of you know highlighting the value proposition of your products better than you can on Amazon. Um, you know, I would say fifty fifty are people are having it linked back to their Amazon listings versus fulfilling directly through a three PL. Um, you know, I would say the majority of the brands that we purchase, though, are, you know, 90 plus percent of revenue is coming from Amazon. 
um, we just, it's a different business model. If you're, if you're going D to C customer acquisition costs are wildly different and more expensive than Amazon. Um, and it's just, you know, you, you do have to manage a three PL, you have to manage uh, content production. Um, you, you gotta, you know, advertise on Google, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a, an expertise that we're, we're building out in the team. And we think that's kind of, you know, version 2.0 for a lot of the brands we're acquiring is to take them off of Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think there's so much leverage and, and opportunity left in, in Amazon itself. Um, you know, let alone the U.S., but even when when you it starts to get really exciting, when you look at look, look at what hitting the other geographies and marketplaces are in within Amazon. Gotcha. So, okay, so let's say you guys, you know, found um, a potential, you know, client or a business that you guys are interested in. Like, what's what kind of metrics uh, do you guys look for? Like, what's what's your like, uh, you know, say like violation metrics, like seller discretion earnings. Like, what is the yeah. cost? How do you determine, you know, how much this company is worth and making yeah. it off? So for, yeah, for us, kind of the higher level is our ideal um, kind of acquisition targets are, you know, doing one to 10 million, uh, you know, probably even higher. And now at this point that we're of larger scale, we, we, were, we were a little bit leery of um, concentration risk uh, when we were first started making acquisitions, but now we have a much broader revenue base. So I'd say it's probably that high end has drifted probably to 15 million in revenue. Um, so one to 15 million in revenue. Um, and then it really, I mean, every business is different. I would say the average uh, margin structure that we've seen, I mean, I've looked at probably 250 plus uh, P&Ls, you know, since I started. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I would say the, the average kind of margin, net margin is probably 20%, but we've seen some as high as 35%. And we've, looked at businesses as low as 10%. Um, it really, it really depends on, you know, the space they're in. If they were an early leader, they built the, you know, they, maybe they were really early. So they had tremendous pricing power. Um, but they, they've, they're, they're still the leader, but they've had competition come in, but you know, it's still such a high volume space that we, you know, we would love that business. You know, one business, for instance, we looked at was doing, um, I think they're even close to 7 million a year in revenue. Um, you know, almost 5 million was from one product listing. Right. Um, and the, their net margins were probably 10 to 12%. Now for that, we might look at price and say, Hey, if FBA fees really go up over the next few years, what's our risk profile, right? You just have a much lower dollar volume to absorb less margin to play with. Um, but I would say, you know, as long as you're around in that, in that area, I would say 15 to 25% of net margin is the majority of the businesses we look at. Um, you know, really high margins, you know, might mean you're, you're susceptible to incremental competition over time. So then it becomes how much of a lead do you have in that market, right? right. Um, and, and that's why low margins could be, you know, a defensibility, right? It's, hey, it's really expensive um, to operate in this market. So that's actually could be a competitive advantage where, you know, someone's not just going to source up Alibaba and, you know, spend a lot. It's going to take a lot of money to enter the market, right? Um, right, exactly. Yeah. And then I would say overall revenue growth pro- profiles, we've seen it vary. Uh, you know, I mentioned kind of the 200 plus P&Ls I've looked at. I, I basically did a, a revenue study and there's just a, a clear, um, 
revenue trends for when FBA businesses hit escape velocity. So first, you know, I would say six months, um, let's say, so for a company that eclipses a million in revenue, this has been the, the typical profile has been the first six months, it's like 50 to 150,000 in revenue. You know, the product takes off, they're chasing inventory um, and, then, and they get their legs underneath them on the inventory front. Um, and then they got to try and find financing so that, that, you know, 50 to 150,000 jumps to anywhere from four to 500,000 first full year in operation. And then it steps up to a million to 1.2 million. And then you actually, you know, oftentimes we'll see, you know, a, a doubling of revenue from there. And then it starts to plateau a little bit at three and a half to four and a half million, um, unless they have a lot of products that they're ramping uh, underneath the engine, so to speak. Um, so it depends on, you know, just where they're at in their company life cycle for revenue growth. So we don't explicitly say, hey, we only want to buy businesses that, have, that are going 50%. You know, we've we've bought businesses that have uh, started to decelerate that have just hit peak and we thought we could optimize them on, you know, some of the some of the costs and re-accelerate growth with PPC uh, investment. Um, so it's not there's no real outlier. I think the only really disqualifiers that we have um, from an acquisition standpoint are, you know, we don't want like to take on a lot of heavy technological um, obsolescence risk. Uh, we don't want, uh, we don't really purchase anything that has a high fashion component to it and no fads. So, you know, we're not going to buy no um, fidget spinners, <laughs> no fidget spinners. Yeah. No, uh, uh, I mean, it's a loose, de loose definition of what a fad is, but I think we all know one when we see one. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I guess maybe, uh, that's, that's some really good information. So let's just, let's just throw out some numbers here. Like let's say yeah. making a million dollars a year. Right, and then after yep. profits and everything, um, the sales two hundred thousand dollars, right? Yep. And add in the owner compensation, maybe another hundred k, so three hundred k, right? So what is a what is a normal like valuation uh, multiplier you guys see? Like, what's the range? Like, is it like one yep. x, like five x? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I know there's 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 varying arguments in the marketplace <laughs> around this. Um, you know, our our stance is. The market is the market, right? What, what I mean, I've, like I said, my investment background. You know, when I was investing in stocks, I'd say, oh, I, this is oh, this this company's worth fifty bucks. You know, why is the stock trading at thirty? Um, because that's what the market is pricing the asset at. So, uh, you know, that's what is changing hands. So you have a buyer and a seller, and they're meeting in the middle, and they're agreeing to sell at this price, and they're agreeing to buy it at, at you know sell at X, and someone's agreeing to buy at Y. So. I, I'll tell you from our experience being in the market, conducting almost 20 of these transactions really in earnest over the past six months, um, the, the, the market is anywhere from two to like two and a half, 2.75 times for your average Amazon FBA business that's doing around the numbers that you spoke of. Um, now there's going to be people out there that, you know, have a tremendous business and, and you know, Maybe they're growing 150%. They have super high margins. They're they've created a niche in the marketplace. They have tremendous um, outside Amazon exposure, and they're actually building brand equity. You know, those businesses might get three to three and a half times. Um, you know, that's that's kind of the, the range that we've paid. The median multiple has been around 2.2 times. Um, now we also we're willing to align with owners and um, give additional compensation on top of that. Uh, multiple. So we might structure 
a lot of the deals we structure have an earnout component to it, which might bring the total transaction value to three times or three and a half times uh, trailing 12 months. So seller's discretionary earning that you alluded to, but it's really each deal is, is different, you know, right, kind exactly. of, it really goes back to all the factors I mentioned before growth profile, margin positioning. Um, you so know. would you say, would you say like bigger businesses are probably worth more money just because, you know, it's a more stable structure, you know, they've been more established rather than someone that just started making, you know, let's just say I just started selling a brand new product. It's attractive to you guys, but I only have one year of history and I'm making 5 million, but it might yeah. be, because you don't know down the line, you know, maybe they don't have the same setup as, you know, a more established company that's been around for, let's say, like five years and you're doing like, you know, 50 million, right? Yeah. And, and so for bigger businesses, I think you have a few dynamics at play. Uh, one of this, which you met, mentioned, just the stability and, and the comfort um, of, the, of the underlying cash flows that the business and the brand are producing. Um, the other big component is that you're, you're going to have more competition for the asset, right? So if you are doing, let's, let's say, I would say the cutoff's probably 3 million or, or more in seller's discretionary earnings, then you might actually get private equity firms um, that are kind of coming down market and looking at deals those size. So th they're, they're gonna be willing to probably pay a little bit more um, for those businesses themselves and, and because they might be one-off purchases or um, they really think that they can take it off of Amazon. Um, but from what we've seen for Amazon specific businesses, you know, that's the range. Um, and, you know, I, I think there, you also have a component of, um, so SBA eligible businesses, which you'll see if, you know, a lot of the uh, website brokers will have, they'll advertise, oh, this is SBA eligible. So SBA eligible uh purchases go up to a, a total transaction value of $5 million. So you might get somebody who, you know, was a, a sales executive at, you know, a big software company and they, they want to roll the dice at being an entrepreneur in e-commerce. So they might come in and they might pay three times, three and a half times because they have a lot, you know, they're financing it. It's not cash out of pocket right up front. Um, so they might be, have a higher risk tolerance um, and, you know, be willing to take a look at it. Uh, so I think you see, you know, there's a lot of studies out there through various brokers and I would just caution people that, um, that's just what the listing price is. Um, that doesn't mean that's what the actual trend deal gets consummated at. Um, you know, right. I think it's, it's, it's a very similar market to, to the real estate market. You know, there's, there's a listing price and somebody might find the perfect house and they're willing to pay over market for it. Um, and then there's other you know, homes that might sit on the market for a few months and then the seller either takes it off market or they decide, you know, to, to they just want to move on um, and accept, you know, a below quoted price. Um, but I think yeah. it's just important that the market's the market, you know, we're not going to be the buyer for everybody. There's, we're just, you know, we're not going to, you know, there's deals we've lost a price. So we're, we're disciplined and we're comfortable and, you know, I think hats off to people that get higher multiples. It's, it's a marketplace. Yeah. So you're talking about brokers. Um, usually yeah. sellers right now, they will find a broker and most brokers take what around 10% um, of, you know, whether it's sale prices, but with you guys, there's no broker, right? Cause it's just straight yeah. from seller, right? 
So yeah. Like- yep. So, yeah. So the, yeah, I mean, brokers are, uh, they, they're great. I, I mean, we, we've, we've done multiple transactions with all the big brokers, quiet light website closers Empire flippers. I think they they do a great service um, for the ecosystem, right? They, they help educate the sellers on, you know, what the process is like. They, they, they can, you know, be there for support, you know, emotionally or just, Hey, am I making the right decision? Um, you know, just to, kind of holding their hand through the process. Um, but you're, you're right. You know, if, if they do work with a broker, they are going to pay that broker fee, but they're, they, they do a lot of legwork that, you know, kind of warrants the fee, right? They, they put a big prospectus together. They make sure your financials are in order, et cetera. Um, you know, we've kind of, I guess a little bit reverse engineer that where we basically have that own service in house. So, you know, we're able to create a, a P and L, um, given seller central access with basically an hour, we can provide, a, you know, produce a monthly PL as long as we get, you know, kind of loose cogs data. Um, we can, you know, we have a team that does all the competitive analysis and, you know, we know how to look at Amazon businesses and marketplaces. So, um, but you're right. Yeah. If, if, if they just come to us direct, you know, you, you kind of lose that broker fee. Um, you, you know, you get to keep that in your pocket. Um, and we can also, you know, we have a bunch of referral partners on the legal side and things as well that we can um, point point people to. But some people like the comfort of, you know, they don't mm-hmm. want them to negotiate directly themselves. Um, again, just like kind of selling a house, you can middleman, yeah, like an agent, yeah, helped you, yeah, negotiate or yeah, just look, yeah, look out, yeah, look exactly. out your back, right? Because I mean, as a buyer, you might not know, you know, all the financial part of you know selling a business, so you might need an expert to help you out. Yep. Yeah. So, so let's say, um, let's say you guys find a business, um, you make, you make an offer, right. And I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm the seller and I'm saying, Hey, I like the price. Like what's, what's the next step after that? Like what's the process, yeah. you know, getting this deal done or closed. Yep. So the kind of the, the first step is, you know, negotiating on just high level terms, um, solidified, you know, we basically both parties sign what's called a letter of intent or an LOI and kind of the acronym. Um, so once the LOI is signed, that's when we kind of our diligence team, you know, we have uh, a great deal team. Um, the majority of whom are in New York. Um, they kind of kick into high gear and, and work one-on-one with the sellers or the seller slash broker um, on just getting access to seller central. If we don't already have it um, reconciling financial statements, um, you know, looking at supplier contracts, looking at patents, verifying trademarks, so kind of all the things that you, if you were buying a business, you'd want to check the boxes basically. Um, but but the, the beauty of Amazon is you have a canonical source of data, which is Seller Central, right? Like the numbers are the numbers. Um, there's not much, uh, you know, fudging that, that can be done except on the general and administrative costs of running a business. Um, so, you know, we, we get access to bank accounts, et cetera. And that process, um, usually we, we ballpark it to take 30 days. Um, you know, we're working on a deal now that might get done in as little as 10 days. It really depends on the complexity of the business. Uh, but, but we have a team that is able to, to do three to four a month right now. So um, as long as we stay in that pace, that should be the, the, the time frame. And then let's say at the end of that 30 days, you know, we formalize a legal binding contract, which is the asset purchase agreement. Um, so up to that stage, there's really no legally binding. It just gives us an exclusivity 
um, to look at to look at the company, and then also you know it's a non-disclosure, etc. And she says, hey, if if these are the numbers that um, turn out to to be what they said you they are in terms of the, the, the profits of the business, this is the executed uh, deal price. And then the asset purchase agreement is the actual execution of the deal. So you know basically the way to think about it is sign a letter of intent. Thirty days later, whatever the purchase price is, the uh, agreed upon upfront guaranteed cash portion gets paid out once the APA is signed. So that's 30 days. You kind of get your biggest chunk of money. And then there's another, you know, 50, it depends on, again, the business, um, but uh, probably another 15, uh, 20 or 30 day migration period whereby, you know, we take, we take on the seller central account. We start to migrate the inventory, um, you know, start ordering new inventory um, and there's a little bit of handholding from the owner in that portion. And then I think one of the things that really differenti differentiates Thrasio as a, as a buyer is that we have our own operations you know, team in-house, our own experts. So once that migration period is over, there's really no um, you know, ask from, from the seller to stay on and consult. So oftentimes... You know, I see a lot of prospectuses and the seller says, oh, we're willing to stay on for six months and dedicate 15 hours a week to help transition. Um, you know, we don't require any of that. So I think it's a great opportunity when you think of time value of money for somebody to, you know, sell their business, basically get paid within 30 days, 45 days. That allows them to go on and have the funds to either start their new endeavor or, you know, go into something totally different. Yeah, that's great. I guess uh, another question for you is, I'm sure you guys done a lot of transactions where, you know, somewhere in this process, you know, maybe the deal falls apart. You guys find something that's, you see something you don't like, maybe a red flag. Like, could you explain maybe, you know, some of the things that could possibly go wrong or you might find yeah. once you've, uh, before you get to the asset purchase agreement? Yeah. So we, you know, we don't enter a letter of intent um, without the explicit, expectation that we're going to close. So we've closed, we closed 95% of letters of intents move through to final purchase. So there's, um, there's a, uh, you know, a, a, a traditional private equities, some, some private equity models is like, um, get, get, get them under agreement and then beat them up and beat them up on price as you go along. Um, we know there's going to be, you know, just things that are, you know, not completely tightened up or exposures or um, that we're going to inherit. This is the marketplace that, you know, where we've, we've chosen to make acquisitions in. So we know there's inherent risk with them, right? So a lot of that is to be candid reflected in the prices, right? Um, but also, you know, we'll, we'll either try and ring fence it. Um, you know, for instance, we had one product that there was definitely some product liabilities um, associated with it. There was a class action lawsuit. We were actually able to carve out those specific ASINs from the entire purchase um, to still get a deal done. We left those ASINs with the seller and said, hey, we'll license you back the trademark. You can continue to try and, you know, basically resurrect that product. Um, you know, the product score started to really plummet. Um, and then we just had this outstanding liability that we, we, we couldn't really put a dollar value around. Um, but for the most part, if we can, if there's something that's dramatic that comes up, we'll, you know, we're easy to work with. We want to, we, you know, we want to do a deal um, and consummate the deal. So we'll work with the seller and, um, you know, very rarely, unless, 
the the profit numbers off dramatically and there's no explanation besides it was just falsified up front or they didn't um you know account for these costs etc um very rarely do we you know if it's, if it's in a certain range we'll, we'll still do the deal and, and there were even you know there were a, a few deals where um you know it came out they've been like illegally eliciting reviews call it um you know something kind of that i'm black sure you see stuff. all the time on <laughs> yeah black hat stuff right yeah um the only time it, it, it if they're not open with it, that that's when it becomes an issue. But if they're open with it, we'll just say, okay, like, well, how many reviews do you think we're, we're are, uh, at risk of being scraped? Right. Right. And then maybe, maybe we do a little, a little bit of a hold back monetary value in case those reviews get scraped. Cause that will impact, you know, the algorithm and placement. Right. Um, so like we, but we've structured deals like that where something has come up in the end hour. Um, but we, we still, you know, we have worked with the sellers to get deals done that was equitable for both parties. Yeah, that's great. That was really good information. I think pretty much covered the whole process of, you know, getting your businesses uh, set up, ready to sell, and then the entire like going through before you get the, you know, sign off on the deal. Yeah. Uh, maybe ask you a question that's kind of a little off topic, but still related to Amazon. Like, what do you think about the new, um, tariffs right now that are in place for uh, the Trump tariffs like how how do you see that affecting you know either the way that you guys uh, value businesses and you know as a seller moving forward like what are what are some of the impacts yeah I mean so the way we the way we look at it right is on average is another benchmark you know cogs is probably you know cost of goods sold is typically around you know low 20% range um, uh, as a percentage of revenue for your typical F private label FBA brand. Um, so if you, you know, if you think about that, right, like let's say your tariff, your cost goes up by 20%, right? So you're, you're looking at like, you know, maybe a couple hundred base, you know, basis points or points of margin on overall net margins. Um, we think, you know, prices will, people will offset with prices. People will find other ways to offset the, you know, the total margin hit. We don't think it's a long-term uh, headwind. Um, you know, one of our, I think strong suits is our, is our supply chain. Um, so if you think about how complex our supply chain is with every acquisition we do, we're often taking on multiple supply chain uh, supplier relationships, um, you know, three PL multiple three PL. So we're, from our perspective, we're, we're, uh, eventually we'll start to consolidate a lot of it, the, our, our own supply chain. So we think we'll be able to offset uh, some of the savings. Agreement whereby, Hey, if you get hit with tariffs, we're going to reduce price or, you know, clawback or anything like that. You know, we're going into every deal eyes wide open. Um, and you know, we look and say, Hey, if, if prices, we, we just do a scenario analysis if prices do rise you know, what does that look like to us? Um, but we never put that theoretical in any sort of deal structure. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what do you think about Amazon and e-commerce in the next, you know, foreseeable future, like five years or so you think? Amazon? Yeah. I mean, what I extremely excited and bullish, um, you know, I think, I think it's easy when you live in this ecosystem to get negative and worry like worrisome i think 
you know, my, the, the get rich quick portion of Amazon, right. is probably, um, in the sixth or seventh inning, um, relative to 20, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015. Um, but I, I think for the, the people that have built really good businesses and, and have, you know, the, the products, the product scores, the review moat, um, I think, I think it's increasingly becoming a, actually a more favorable marketplace. Um, cause conversely it's, it's much harder to launch products, right? So the value of your existing products should, should start to increase over time as Amazon cleans up the, the bad actors and the black hat tactics, et cetera. Um, and when you look at e-commerce overall, it's still, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15% of total retail sales with Amazon attributing half of that. So I think when you look at shopper behaviors, uh, demographic tailwinds, um, and just the, the endless aisle that Amazon offers, you know, I think we're, we wouldn't be doing this if we thought there was a, you know, a, a big, you know, we're running full steam into a concrete wall in, in three or four years. Um, so I, I think just, I, I often get asked that and I, I debate it. Uh, I had a few debates at IRC about Amazon and, you know, are they going to, who, who are they going to lose to, et cetera. Um, at this point in time, I, I really find a, a hard, um, a, you know, an answer for a competitor who's going to come in and usurp Amazon's e-com dominance. Uh, you know, I think it would have to be somebody that has, I, I guess the biggest, uh, I guess a blind spot that Amazon has is servicing new brands um, and, and new products to market. Right. I mean, there's only, there's only so much space on page one to advertise products. They're trying to answer it with sponsored products and headline ads and, and things like that and the accelerators and incubators. But um, that's where some, you know, a platform like platforms like Instagram and Facebook, I think have a leg up in product discovery. Um, so I think that's, that's a gap that uh, Amazon is trying to jump. Um, but in terms of, you know, I don't think anybody's going to beat them on uh, delivery, uh, breadth of product offering um, and price. Right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe price, but um, the, the price is set by the, the marketplace and, and the suppliers on the market, right? So I think, you know, we look at all the time, hey, should we be taking this product in the walmart.com? Should we, you know, jet should we be doing shopify i mean when you look at it on a financial basis it's really hard to justify the return at this point um which yeah, I mean, just, I think, just based on just the domination of how much um you know everyone uses amazon right? everyone buys on amazon and it's just they've made the process really easy right where i don't need to go to the yep. store you know drive my car i get my stuff the same day now right and you know back in the days I used to spend a lot of time like going through like eBay and looking at like, what's the best price for the same product and spending a lot of time, you know, looking for the best price. Now it's like, Hey, I just want something at Amazon. If, if I see on page one, it's great. I don't really care too much about the price. I'm just going to buy it. Right. It's just, it just yeah. makes my life easier. Right. And yeah. it's, it's hard you know, to it's gonna a platform that just yeah. comes out and it can make the same type of experience, but uh, definitely. Yeah, and you know, it's going to show up on time. You know, it's going to show up on time, right? I mean, that's, that's, I think the beauty of the, the FBA model um, is just you're riding on Amazon's brand, right? I mean, everybody knows Amazon, everybody shops on Amazon, right? So you, you're leveraging their brand and 
you, you don't necessarily have to spend a lot of money building brand equity and that's why you're paying a 15% commission, right? You're, you're paying for the traffic versus, you know, a direct to consumer brand, which you're investing, you know, you're, you're definitely running at a loss for a long time until you really build up that repeat customer base, your lifetime value of a customer, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I think we'll end the podcast here. Well, thank you so much, Ken, for coming on and giving us so much knowledge about, you know, how to sell your, how to set up your company and get ready for sale. I think this is something that's very unique, what you're doing. There's not too many other companies right now in this marketplace and it gives sellers, um, something to look for, right? Something like hope, right? It's like as a, as a seller, yeah. it's like the, the thing you really want to do is you want to build a good brand and then profit on it, make some money and cash out. Right. So this is really, good. Yeah. Um, so for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, yeah. I would just say that's, that's a really good point that we didn't actually touch on is that, um, just really quickly is just the economics, right? Um, a lot of people say, Hey, well, I could just, if you're, if you're going to pay me two and a half times, SDE, I'll just run it for two and a half years and I'll make the same money back. And when you factor in taxes, investment and inventory, you know, you sell your business in the US, it's going to be a 20% capital gains tax versus continuing to run it, uh, you know, ordinary income tax, close to 50%, depending on your state. And then you're reinvesting that profit back in inventory. So you got capital tied up. So, it, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a different economic uh, trade-off analysis than, people make it out to seem. So I just implore people to, you know, think through it or talk through it with somebody. Yeah. I mean, it sounds sounds very complicated, right? Like a a lot of sellers are like terrified. Like you don't understand, uh, you know, the sales part of selling a company and uh, just the way that you guys done it, make it so easy. You know, um, you know, I think a lot of people are going to look into like growing their business and, you know, selling it. So, uh, for everyone yep. out there again, uh, Ken, he's from Thrashio. That's the website is T H R A S io. Thanks for joining us this week on the Ecom Wiz podcast. Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, FeedbackWiz.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Spotify. That way, you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found the show helpful, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us also. Join us next week for more great tips to help Amazon sellers dominate the marketplace. 